0: just gonna picture your life as a four burner stovetop one burner represents your family one is your friends the third your health and the fourth career now if you have them all going at once you're going to burn out so in order to be successful you need to turn one off if you want to be super successful they say turn off two my name is Josh Earl, and by the end of this podcast, we'll see which ones are being left on and which ones are getting turned off. This is Four Burners. Hello, and welcome to Four Burners. My name is Josh Earl, and today, joining me, a very special guest. Writer, musician, actor, comedian, composer, or is that the same as writer?
1: I guess it's... I guess when it's music, you get the voice yeah. of a composer. Anyway, please That's welcome Any Perfect, everyone. Yeah.
0: Yay! How you doing, buddy? Do you know when you click? It was really loud, wasn't it? It was great,
1: but it's such a weird mechanism when you click because you're pushing these fingers together, and then it's the sound of that one striking the butt of your palm. So it's that. Bit. So I,
0: ideally, you should just be able to do that, and it works
1: really fast.
0: The sound of one finger clicking. Yeah.
1: Because <laughs> I didn't really even put that two together until I was wearing gloves I have fingerless gloves, and I'm like. Why can't just I click? Just that. My fingers are exposed, but this bit's got to be... That's the slap sound.
0: I was seeing this morning as I was coming in to do this, we've we've known each other for over 20, 20 years, I think. Wow. I think... When did you start doing comedy around Melbourne? I started doing comedy...
1: It's all getting a bit blurry now, but um, I think 2003 yep. was when I um, first put my cabaret show that I'd done at Chapel of Chapel, a, a cut down one hour version in the Melbourne Comedy Festival and I didn't know anyone
0: or anything. Yeah. And, um, Were you like me? I thought the Comedy Festival was just the gala that was on TV. I oh, know you grew up in Melbourne, so you would have known. Well, I grew up in anyone. Melbourne, but
1: I don't know if I, I knew of the Comedy Festival, but I don't think I'd ever really gone and and sort of seen it because, you know, I like a I graduated from drama school and I was sort of a poor student and I wouldn't have had the yep. money just to go see a bunch of stuff. And then doing comedy, it was such a welcoming community. And it was yeah. before um, the internet was selling tickets. So yep. people did turn up at the town hall and they did look at that big board and they were susceptible to people with flyers. And, and you would get, you know, sold out shows and then it would be like, well... What am I gonna see? And Janet McLeod was yep. on on my side and would go, Go and see this
0: guy's show and it was great. I had to say and there's also that thing was before people would do bonus or extra shows or their venues, like I think the biggest venue you could do was the town hall, but that was only one person did that and it was like fifteen hundred people and then that's right. Other people had like I think like someone like a Husie or a Wheel did like four hundred and if they sold out the overflow people would go, Oh, we'll go and see something where yes. now there's bonus shows and they don't have that overflow.
1: Oh, so they've taken that away as well. Yeah. It's really so for, tough.
0: For young kids, going. it's it's tough. But I was thinking, so it was, I, I, I so met you once at the local Laughs in St Kilda, and then yes. early 2005, I think it was, it was January, you and me, uh, veteran philosopher Justin Hazelwood, Sammy J, Sam Simmons, and Tim Minchin did Laugh-a-Palooza.
1: That's right. God, you got a good memory that was in January did you? That say? was in January
0: I only know it was January cuz I couldn't stick around I was on first and I had cuz it was I went and saw La Tigra one night and I went and saw the Polyphonic Bread the following night or something like that and I was like oh, I'd like to stay stick around and watch the show guys but I'm off to see some bands Oh wow
1: <laughs> Well I remember that was a that was a really interesting time of um for musical comedy there was a lot happening I remember Sister She Yes Elbow Skin um
0: who else was who else was
1: kicking around? Oh, they were the Sydney guys, Axis of Awesome. Axis of Awesome. And there was also
0: Smart Casual from Sydney as well. They were two gotcha. two brothers. Yep.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it was a really big it was a really big time and um it was great to have it all under one tarpaulin yep. so, yeah. roof.
0: So that was called Laugh Palooza, it was the RMIT Collide Theatre. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And then
1: we did some at the tent as well yes. down
0: and that was that was the big hot ticket. It was like the because I remember the lineup being, and one of the acts, I won't say who, took so long sound checking that the night didn't start till forty-five minutes late one night, and I was like, "This is insane." Oh, really? Yeah. I don't remember that. So I was singing to a backing track, and they just couldn't get it working. And I was like, "Just get up there and play an instrument, buddy." <laughs> but we're not talking about we're going to talk about four burners so uh, I told you what the show was about so is there anyone you want to start with first is there family career friends or health which one do you want to go with first
1: well I get I love an an analogy and especially one that's got anything to do with cooking because I really love cooking and I think about my my, I've got like a five. I've got five burners, yeah. And then the middle one's got like a little one in between. So it's, I've got quite a lot of um opportunity. I can add have. some
0: more stuff then. We'll, we'll chuck relationships here. No, we won't. We'll but I never do.
1: really use one more than one or maybe two at a time. Some pots start yep. competing, and then it's annoying. But um at the moment, my life is, you know, really it's it's work and family. They're the okay. two. They're the two big things. So I which
0: one do you me. want to start with, career or family?
1: Let's we'll start with career because it's more interesting than oh, my family.
0: Cool. So, what do you tell people you do? <laughs> What's that? What do you tell people you do?
1: Um, well, I tell people I write musicals now. Yeah. That's kind of what I'd say. Yeah. Um, because that's that's the majority of what I do. And this year, 2023, I did a little bit of a little bit of acting just to throw stuff back into the mix. But then last year I went on tour with a, with a big commercial musical, 9 to 5, the musical, the yeah. Dolly Parton musical. And, yeah, I don't, look, that was... My kids are 13, now 14 and 11. Um, and probably going away on a big national tour when my 13-year-old's just started high school was not a great idea because yeah. she sort of had a rough time in year seven. Um, and so, not because she's weakling but because she's incredibly naughty she's just she's the she's the ringleader yep you know what i mean it's really weird having a ringleader as a kid
0: it's kind of like i know as a parent you don't want your kid to get in trouble but it's it's sometimes like they've got a bit of energy about them it's kind (sighs) of nice
1: i get a lot of it's really my um i used to get really upset when you know a parent would call me and like your daughter did this or the school would call me and your daughter did this and now and now i try not to react straight away is she, she's the younger one? Uh, no, she's the older one. Oh, she's the older one. Because yeah. my
0: younger one is like this. And I think because we have a lot of friends of his who he, they're like, they're nine. And so their friends are the oldest in the family, but he's got a 12-year-old brother. So he's used to like things that being like, he got to play different computer games earlier than his friends yeah. did. He got to watch certain movies before his friends did. And so he goes to school and tells them all and all the parents are like, Josh and they're not—they're not good parents. They're letting this kid get away with too much stuff. Like, I know. Well, because it's fun. I know it's <laughs> fun,
1: and I know. And then, you know, we've we've taken our kids to see theater from a very early age, and to be honest, I don't really censor theater. Yeah. Like I would censor maybe films or yeah. And then I've, I'm I'm like I'm just not I'm I'm just obviously a terrible dad because I, when it comes to art, I'm just like open slather. Yep. I'm like you know. So, for example, um, an artist that's that's really popular in our household is Doja Cat. Yep. Love Doja Cat. Um, You know, you're not going to come away from a Doja Cat album without knowing a lot about vaginas. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And that's fine. I don't really mind it too much. Yeah. but you know, it's a lot. And my eleven <laughs> year old and her friend, I was I drove them to gymnastics and we we'll listened to the new Doja Cat album and and then we're at seven eleven getting a slurpee and they said to me, What does Fellatio mean? And I'm like, Okay, well I got no problem talking to my kid yeah. about fellatio, But this other eleven year old is not my kid. Yeah. So I was like, I'm gonna tell you what Fellatio, fellatio is and no, it was Cunny Lingus, that's what they wanted to know. I'm going to tell you what it is, but I don't want you to get me in trouble because you, I just have to tell you the truth because you've asked and I don't yeah. want to be one of those parents that gets all weird and makes things that are not weird weird for kids. Yeah. So it's oral sex when someone gives oral sex to a woman and they were like, right, and obviously they've been listening
0: to the album so like a whole yeah. bunch of things fell into place. and they, were like, you know,
1: It's not a foreign concept no. on a Doja Cat album.
0: It is that thing though when you say like, when you go back and you go, no, I don't want you to get me in trouble. It's like, you don't want to teach kids to keep secrets from no. their parents. It's, no, it's, yeah, but I don't know. And I'd just
1: be like, you know what? We we'll were listening to Doja Doja Cat, and
0: yeah, it came up. It what, came what, up a lot. It's either I tell them or they Google it, and that's way worse. Yeah, yeah. Um, so back to career then. Sorry. Okay, was it something? Was music and theatre something you always was into as a kid?
1: No. I mean yes I I liked it but I didn't the the uh, the concept that I would be doing it as yep. a career was something that was I just it was just something other people did I didn't even you know you look at something and you go well there's obviously a bazillion magical steps between where I am and and where they are yep. and I don't know what they are and yep. so uh, it's probably not even worth yep. thinking about but I wanted to be a, a visual artist and that seemed accessible to me because I don't know. You just, I just, you just seem to make stuff and you put it on a wall. You yeah. know, what's the what's in between you and that dream? Not much, really. Just putting in the in the work. But I was doing music and singing as a a hobby, I guess, as an interest all the way through high school. And I also played the piano. I self taught pianist to sort of sat at the piano and played the piano every day. Yeah. Also, as a hobby, not with any thought of doing it as a career. Whose piano in the house was it? Um, I don't know. I think it came from my mother's side of the family. So it was really old, yeah, and all the ivory re- really kind of like um, had beautiful old stains. So actually, um, unconsciously, when I learnt to play the piano, when I learnt where notes were, it was because they were like the keys were stained with tea and coffee i don't know what all sorts of stuff so they were each key was 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 quite unique and when i did a piano concert on another piano and to play a piano that was pristine white i was like i don't know what these <laughs> notes are anymore so um i learned on that piano and that was just my after school i just tinkle 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 and um I'm not a good sight reader, yep, and but I've got good ears, and my uncle was a piano bar player, um, who never had a lesson, just he just played from ear. Yep. He was a walking jukebox; he could play anything, and he just said to me, "Just listen to the radio and play what you hear." Yeah, and because he'd done it, that's what that's what I did, and that's why I learned. I
0: think that's why guitars and piano are more popular than like other instruments because you can actually play a song to the radio. Like if you're a tuba player, it's like it's hard to go. All right, I'll practice all these all these scales and go, but. On my, own, on my own it doesn't sound cool.
1: That's it. Yeah. Like a guitar and a piano are are, are accompanying yep. instruments. And actually it was learning guitar in year eight because it was it was 1992. I was 13, 14 years old. And it was the you know, the rise of grunge music and yep. so Nirvana was huge, but I also loved um I loved Jimi Hendrix and I loved um Guns N' Roses and all that music was kind of rock music was getting shared a lot. Yep. Um Rage Against the Machine. I remember where I was the first time when I heard "Killing in the Name of." That was like kind of a big moment. Yeah. And I, the thing about guitar is because it's sort of a newer, mod, more. It's been around forever, but the but the modern modern guitar is doesn't have any of the baggage that classical music has. And when you come to learn piano, and I learned uh, at Yamaha, but I, you can learn like Suzuki method or whatever. It was very much like you get the sheet music, you read the sheet music, you play your you know you play your Bach Menuet in G major, yep. and you know you play your scales, and that's your way in. Whereas guitar, it's like, wh- what do you do? What do you need to do? Do you need do you need to read like numbers on yeah. a tablature, or do you need to be hung upside down in a swimming pool? Whatever yeah. you need to do to make a sound, we don't care. We don't have any judgment. Yep. It's just get in there and enjoy it. Chord shapes, great. You know,
0: for those listeners who don't know, the Suzuki method method is you just repeat the same. Like it's not like sight reading, is it? It's just like you. you it's just a combination. Repeat.
1: They use, they use oral, oral training as well, so yeah. you're listening to what you play, and the idea is about from the very beginning, um, not just sort of thumping out notes, but but um, making a sound that's a, that's considered an yeah. interesting.
0: We, we live next door to a couple whose kids were going learning violin through the Suzuki method. So every day right. we'd count down. It's like if they get to five minutes before they start screaming at each other, that's a good That's a good little session for them. Wow. Like they were like seven and four or five or something like that. So they were like very young.
1: And brutal instrument too, the, yeah. the violin. Because you think of a fretted instrument or a piano, you put your finger on the fretboard or you put your finger on the key and it plays that note if the instrument's in tune. Um, but... Violin. there's no fretboard and it's all yeah. you know you really have to be hearing your intonation as to whether you're in tune or not and that takes a really long time to make good sound yeah it does
0: so you go to drama school in Perth is that right
1: yeah I went to yeah I went, to, went to Whopper did music for theater. A, music theatre okay mm. and
0: then you come out of that you move back to Melbourne yep so how long was it is it three years three year course yeah three years come back to Melbourne I looked at the, I didn't know you got you had some good roles like good TV credits you were like yeah, did who like hearers? guesties in TV shows, stingers, mm-hmm. water rats. Oh wow, yeah. I did, did did my research. Then uh, then you started doing like your cabaret shows. So what was the first one?
1: I wrote a show um, with Paul McCarthy and Fiona Scott Norman. Yep, um, called Cliffhanger Catch a Falling Star. And it was a character that Paul McCarthy had created, who was sort of like an amalgam of a whole bunch of like, you know, Tony Barber or yeah. you know, Johnny Young. Burt Newton, Normie Rowe, you know, sort of like a, a, a faded celebrity who was really bitter and angry about being discarded by the industry and had put together this cabaret show to sort of make a comeback and pump up his own tyres. But he's really angry, very um, traumatised by his, his um, experience in the Vietnam War yep. and um, it was a really dark comedy. Yep. And we ended up performing it at the Melbourne Comedy Festival at an RSL um, oh, great. Which was. Which was oh, at, was that
0: Duckboard House? Yeah, Duckboard yeah, House. Yeah, I, I did a season there as well. Yeah, which was yeah. great.
1: But it meant that there were like. We had some return service and we came. And there was a whole like Vietnam medley. And yeah. there was a bit where I like. I shook a plastic bag full of air and made it sound like a helicopter. And Cliff would have like a kind of a flashback. flashback and it was, you know, we're really. It was a lot, he was really that, that character was really racist and really sexist and um, kind, kind of predatory It was an awful yeah. character but very funny and that was my first experience um, writing a Cabaret with um, it had covers in it but I also wrote a lot of original songs yeah. um, for that and at the same time I was developing my own show which was originally uh, like a two hour two act Cabaret show that I did at Chapel Off Chapel and then um, I wanted to do the comedy festival because I wanted to do it for actual people, yep. you know, rather than just, I felt like the demographic of people coming to see cabaret was too narrow and, and, and too old, frankly, when I was young. I was like, I want I to do this stuff, I yep. want this stuff to be funny for young people.
0: Yeah, because I remember there was a, a bit of a boom in cabaret and you were included and then Tim and uh, there's a whole bunch of people, but it was almost like, the, the rock stars of cabaret were kind of, kind of coming through, and it was like cool because I remember seeing you do a sh- one of your shows, a place in like Abbotsford or Richmond. There it was like oh the terminus, the terminus, yes. Yeah. Alison White owned the owned the place, and I remember going to see you there. It was a great show, but it was that thing. It was like it was a cool like cabaret was coming. It was becoming cool again.
1: Yeah, and I I think at the time I remember caring really passionately about cabaret but hating the word cabaret yeah. and hating the connotations that people had with that art form because it it's it just sounded so sort of like... For me, I was like, okay, cabaret is, you know, middle-aged, out-of-work musical theatre performers just yeah. singing their audition songs and talking about their... You know, they're really boring lives.
0: Yeah. So then you turn to something cooler, musical comedy. That was. Musical <laughs> comedy. Yeah. But I
1: remember uh, being a huge fan of musical comedy because I grew up um, with Tom Learer, with. I had the double cassette tape of um, Monty Python. I yeah. knew every single sketch and song. Um, Doug Anthony All Stars. That was the one for me that got I mean, me into it. Yeah. That was so anarchic and, and yeah. wild and funny. The fact that, you know. And, I, and, and having j- just sort of tuned into what comedy was. The thing that got me about comedy, I remember being taken by Janelle Koenig, who was at the time, and this is before I even ever thought of doing comedy, um, she was really interested in being a comedian. And so she was sort of starting to do open mics and plugged into the scene. And she took me to the Gershwin room at the Esplanade Hotel in St Kilda. And I saw Greg Fleet do a set. And it blew my mind. It just yeah. absolutely—it was so um, kind of dangerous. Yeah, just couldn't—I I couldn't believe that it was. You know, th- that a, a space had been created where it was safe to just purge all of this really dark, heavy stuff, but always keeping it fun and light. And I just thought it—it was—it was, it was it really respected the intelligence. And, and the good nature of the audience in a way that I just hadn't seen any live theatre thing do before. It certainly doesn't happen on TV. I mean, it never yeah. has. It's a, a censored art form. And it was so wild and free. And I was like, what the fuck is this? And again, I never thought I can do this. Yeah. I was just like, I cannot believe that a guy with a, or a woman with a microphone can create this atmosphere and get this response from human beings in a room. It's great.
0: So then, so you then do that, and then in two thousand is it two thousand five or six? You do the show with Max Gillies. It was really close on. I think it was it
1: was like two thousand and four because we did a we did a show at Malthouse Theatre. I kind of had my yeah. sort of theatre career going as well. Yeah, we did a piece called Babes in the Wood, which was sort of a it was based on the old pantomime, but it was sort of about a travelling group of pantomime actors in Australia in nineteen oh one, kind of having their show and their lives fall apart on stage. And so we got along really well and then he asked me, he'd seen some of my solo show Angry Eddie and asked me to come and do for him what other piano players had done in the past, people like Phil Scott, like basically cover his costume and prosthetic changes. Um, And it was a show called The Big Con set in a a right-wing think tank. And so we were all playing right-wing characters and I got to write some really horrible songs like gay people shouldn't get married and I perform that. that for his audience and his audience hated me. Yeah. They just, they were like, they did not like it at all. And it was my first experience cause we opened at the, um, opera house. Yep. And it was like, I just, the first show I was not ready for the negative reaction. There's a real difference between people who aren't really enjoying what you're doing and people who are actively offended. It, it, the whole atmosphere sort of like creates a, a black hole of energy, a vacuum that as a young performer, I just wanted to, I just thought, oh, I need to feel this. It's just so awkward and it's so, yeah. so horrible. I'll go faster. or I'll, And I just, I had to learn how to sit in immense discomfort yeah. with a smile on my face. So that was a, a good learning curve.
0: How Was that the first time you'd, you'd experienced that kind of level of criticism as well for, for a performance?
1: Yeah, and Max shielded me from a lot of it. Yeah. But I came in one day to the dressing room, and there were about five or six letters that he'd opened up, and you know he would have them. He would sort of read them, and normally he would read them, and I wouldn't sort of see them. But I guess I was in the theatre early, (laughs) and he was off doing something, probably you know some makeup or whatever. He spent a lot of the time in a makeup chair, and I just glanced at these things, and every single one was a letter of complaint about me. And I remember saying, "Hey, I just snuck a peek at some of these letters, and I'm like, if this is not working for you, I really don't want to like yep. be the one that ruins Matt Skilly's career. I'm happy like just to part ways." And he's he was he was so nice. He's like, he's like, there's two things I've learned. One thing is it, no one can remember shit, so people come up to me and go, You're I loved." Um, this character I loved it when you did Simon de Bouvier or whatever and he'd be like I've never done that character in yeah. my life so that's just a false memory and they'll swear black and blue and he said everybody loves the last show and then they hate the current show and then that'll swap yep. when you go to the next show they'll love the last one because because they forget the discomfort and they just they just their mind has made it safe for them over the period of time and they they remember it fondly, but in the in the moment, it, it's supposed, if it's doing its job, it's supposed to make people uncomfortable.
0: Yeah, exactly. So, okay, let's move forward then, because uh, I could talk old comedy shows all day. So, you had Shame on the Musical. Yes. You're also in Keating. So, you now, like, you've written a musical, performed in the musical. Then, when do you go to the States? I went to the
1: States um, in 2015, yeah. and I went. Um, maybe even earlier, maybe like 2013, 2014. Um, I went because i just finished writing some songs for the stage adaptation of Strictly Ballroom yep. and I'd done that with Baz Luhrmann, which was a really exciting thing to do. But the way that show worked was he had about, you know, he had like a dozen people writing songs for that show yep. and he would just give you a little piece of the puzzle and say, hey, um, can you write a song for Barry Fife?" I'm like, great. But I had no idea what song had come before, what was yeah. going to come after. I had no control over the score. So I couldn't control... You know, you know, every song was like, do I swing for the fences here yeah. or is it time for a ballad? No idea, because I don't know what the rest of the show is. Um, plus, I also wasn't in the rehearsal room. So yeah. I would send off the songs, I would get notes, I would do them. But then I, ultimately, I wasn't there to hear it and see it sung by the actor in context with the show to work out what things I needed to do. So by the end of that process... I felt like I'd done a lot of writing but I hadn't done what I really wanted to do which was to collaborate on writing a new musical and to feel like that I owned the score. So, of course, what I did about that was whinge and yeah. then my wife said, you just, just buy a ticket and go to New York. Yeah. And I was like, that's ridiculous. I don't know anyone. I don't know anything. But I just I just did. I bought a ticket and and um I went and I would go for like... 10 days, two weeks and I would go like maybe two or three times a year. And I did that for two years and I've still got the text messages I used to send to Lucy. I'm like, what the fuck am I doing? This is so pointless. I found an agent, but then I, I was like, that's not an agent's great, but that wasn't work. And then, I even remember when um, I heard Beetlejuice was going around and without it, they were looking for a composer lyricist. I asked if I could pitch, and they and they said no because they already had it out to pitch with about four or five different composing teams. They had no idea who I was. All the musical examples I had. At that point, were Australian. One was the cast album of Shame war the musical. Yeah. The other one was uh, a recording I did with the Brodsky Quartet, which was a piece of, I wrote called *Songs from the Middle*, which was about growing up in Mentone in Melbourne. Yeah. So is even more niche. <laughs> and uh, so I just blagged my way in by saying, oh, "I'll write two songs for free. What if they just if they just turned up? Will you listen to them?" And they were like, "Yeah, okay." Yeah. And so that's how I got them the in to write that that show.
0: So so Beatles are, because it's back now touring and you're doing Australian cast, right? Yeah. When, when does that kicks off next 2025. year? 2025. 2025, okay. So, because that started, then went away, then came back. Yeah. What was that just in terms of, I don't want to say the emotions of that, but once it goes away, do you go, fine, let's work on the next piece or is there people fighting to get it back on?
1: Yeah, well, when... When it opened in New York, it, it, the first two weeks, it just was really terrible. Yeah, And we they have a – it's like seasonal. So, you know, they have a season that runs like almost like the financial year for us, you know, the middle of the year to the middle of the year. And every show that's in that season is then represented at the bunch of awards that include the Tony Awards. And Beetlejuice, the first two weeks, didn't sell – it had a really bad reputation from opening in Washington, D.C., and the and, and the critics hating it. Yeah. And even though we've done a huge amount of rewrites, no one really believes that you're going to be able to fundamentally fix what they thought was a broken show. So we couldn't really get people in the door. So the previews were okay, but then we opened, and then we were like, I think the show's going to close. And then we got nominated for a whole bunch of Tony Awards, which was a surprise to everybody. And then we got to, that, that allowed us to perform at the Tony Awards. Yeah. And because we were in such desperate straits, the producers let me rewrite the whole opening number to be about Beetlejuice crashing the Tony Awards, and that had a profound effect on our fortunes because no one—I didn't know this. This is a very Australian thing, but like, you know, it's like you get a corporate gig or you get whatever, and and it's like it's for Target or it's for whatever, and you go, okay, well, that can you write a song or can you amend a song you've already got to be about? And that's just something we do. Here, I think as musical comedians is tailor songs to events Broadway composers don't do that they're like this is my work and it's sacrosanct and I won't change a note and a lyric and I was like well every time Beetlejuice does a publicity moment and we got we were really lucky we got like um, Good Morning America uh, the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade like let's rewrite the song to be about that event and to be really specific and to call out specific people that are there yeah Um, Because that's what I'm used to doing. Yeah. And that had a huge effect. That and the cast album, suddenly the show caught fire and we were like this sellout hit. It was crazy.
0: It's it's that thing of like comedians are so used to tailoring for the audiences. Like we do our act but we look at the audience, we go, okay, well, they're either drunk or they're older or whatever and we can tailor on the fly. Yeah. Whereas other like... Jonathan Richmond, uh, one of my favorite singers, he talks about no, you never, you never tailor it to the audience. It's your show. I'm like, I love him, but I disagree with that. I'm like, sometimes it's it's the vibe in the room. You need to address it, and then you can then you can kind of go into what you wanted to do. But you've got yeah. to you there. And coming, I also did a theater degree, and so many of the people I did it with, their whole thing was, yeah, I want to fuck with the audience. I'm like, I just want an audience. I want them to enjoy it. I don't want to go yeah, we're going to mess with your heads and you're going to walk out going, oh, I'm not sure if I enjoyed that. I'm like, that's a very young like person's attitude to yeah.
1: art. I think it is a young person's attitude because I think, um, and, and I remember having a similar attitude. I just presumed people would love to come and yep. see me. And now I realise how hard it is to see <laughs> yes. anything. Yes, yeah. That I'm actually amazed that people turn up yep. at my shows. I'm just yep. like... Think I know I know how hard it is to leave the house. Bravo!
0: So you also you've been very lucky. Uh, another great bit of uh, advertising for the show was the U.S. Senator uh, Lauren oh, Bobert. Yeah. yeah, that was great. Everyone's talking about Beetlejuice. Over okay,
1: there. number one. Did you know that you were filmed like on CCTV camera when no. you were watching theater? I'm like, it made me really nervous. I'm like, I've done some. I used to. I used to Broadway and theatre in America, the one thing that's really intense about it is the, how expensive booze is at the yep. theatre. You just can't... It's like, it's insanely expensive because you have to buy like the fucking sippy cup and then it's like... It can cost you like 50 bucks for a, for a drink. So I bought, I'd bought buy like the Beetlejuice sippy cup and then I would like buy a bottle of like Jamisons or whatever yeah. and I would just pour it into my sippy cup and I'd be like, great, this is my... I'm going to have a drink tonight. And... I had no idea there were cameras and shit. I like, bottle of Jameson's in my bag. I didn't give... It. So, anyway, that's... Uh, like, thankfully, I got away with that. But that was such good publicity for the yeah. show. Because, A, it was like, okay, it excited me that people on both sides of the political divide were into the show. Yep. And it's, it baffled me because she's such a sort of family values type senator. Like, you know... Um, very conservative, very Christian family values, Senator. And yet, um, Beetlejuice is is, is really, a, a, if it says anything, it says, we only have this life and after you die, there's just sort of nothingness. Yeah. Or if there's anything, it's a bureaucratic abyss of nothingness. Um, and so we need to cling to the people we have in our lives and that life just isn't, isn't just about nuclear family, it's about the people we kind of amass and gather along the way and they're all sorts of different people and... Uh, have different values and, to us, but we need to be able to incorporate them into our lives. And they're very non-Christian type things, but she's she knew all the words. So I'm like, man, that's a logical disconnect I'm happy to welcome.
0: She loved it and her date loved it too. All right. Uh, <laughs> any, anything else I need to talk about career? I think, I think we've wrapped up career. That's good. Career's going right. well. Career, you happy with your career?
1: Well, now I'm writing three musicals at once. So... I, I I was glad... I, there was a point in New York where I was worried that it might have... I might have gone, This is I can't do this anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. Because I got to a point where, you know... Um, the show, Beetlejuice wasn't really working. King Kong had opened. It was a fucking disaster. It got horrible reviews. And it was actually not, not a fun thing to make. It was a, a stressful thing. Everyone was under a lot of stress. And that meant that people ended up, um, you know, maybe... It didn't make people come together.
0: That's and, what happened there. And you were hired to do the music for that.
1: I was hired to write songs for yeah. that. Yeah.
0: Is it is it hard? Not harder, but is it that thing trying to find motivation when it's not your vehicle?
1: Um, not really. If you're with your collabor- collaborators and you've got a sense of what it is you want to say and yeah. and how you want to say it, I. I certainly believed in um, the technical elements of the show and how extraordinary the puppetry was on yep. Kong, and I thought it was an opportunity to tell an interesting story. I, I don't think we told an interesting story, and I don't, I don't know what... I don't, Actually, I don't know... You know, I try not to think about King Kong too much, but um, it is really good to think about how things worked and why they did work and why they didn't work. Yep. And one of the things was we made this show in the rehearsal room without the giant puppet because it physically can't exist anywhere else but the theatre, yeah. and, and it re- requires twelve people to manipulate it to bring it to life. So in the room, you just have an act—you have an actor playing a gorilla—and yeah. it's quite a weird thing, but you get used to it, especially because our um, physical actors were so fantastic. That you create, we created this show on a human scale. It was like a contemporary dance piece. It was like really dynamic, amazing physical language. Drew McConey, who choreographed it and directed it, did a brilliant job, and it was sweaty and raw and amazing. And then um, we took it to the took everyone to the theater and paired it up with the giant puppet, and the human-sized story just vanished. Yeah. You just couldn't see it anymore. Um, and then from that point in, it was kind of like too late to turn the Titanic around. The the, the icebergs were coming, and it's just such a technical show, it was very difficult to to fix it. So, that was really hard, and it was exhausting and tiring. And you also, you know, um, yeah, you literally wa- I'd walk out of the theater through conversations yeah. of people just talking about how shit it was, and that you know, that took a
0: toll. <laughs> apart from like, I'm, I'm guessing you talk about this kind of stuff with your wife, but was, was there people on the cast and crew that you could talk about how like the challenge is going, what can we do? Or do we just kind of go, fuck it? We've we're No, of- we all
1: tried to come together to fix it. Everyone worked really hard. Um, um, Yeah, but uh, I don't know whether everyone we necessarily agreed about what was wrong or had yeah. the time to really make the changes that needed to be changed. And then no one knows yeah what to change um you know there were things like okay it's it's 45 minutes in act one before the gorilla turns up yeah. that's too long to bring the gorilla in early once you bring the gorilla in and you take the gorilla away and you want to just hear a song from Andaro about poverty or ambition yeah. people are like just bring the monkey back
0: yeah you know I mean? yeah Bring the monkey the, was so good. Bring the monkey back. It could be for my career as well. All right. Uh, so we'll go with family, friends, or health. Which one do you want to do?
1: Um,
0: let's oh, let's talk about health. I haven't talked health. about health. How, yeah. How do you think your health is? What's
1: <laughs> interesting? It's better than it than it was. Like I um I went and saw my father had a quadruple bypass last year. Yeah. And that was scary because I've had like, you know, um early signs of things like potential high blood pressure or high cholesterol yep. or, or hypertension or any of those sorts of things. And it was always in my head like I gotta do something about this at some point. And then I went and saw a doctor for a blood test and she said you've got dangerously high triglyceride count. This is what happens in your forties. Yeah no, I and know. And so all I was like, Do you know about triglycerides? I
0: don't know. I don't I've been told because I've got high cholesterol. You've got high cholesterol. My dad also had uh, tribal bypass surgery at age 47. I'm 42. Wow. And he had a heart attack at 31. Uh, but look, he'd, he'd been smoking for 16 years up until that point. So, right. And also eating badly. Was and he overweight? A little bit overweight. And then last year, at the end of last year, major heart attack was dead for 12 minutes. I, said, I think I said with Sammy Shay it was six minutes. My brother said, no, it's actually 12. He was dead for 12 minutes. Oh. The ambulance got there within six minutes. But yeah, it was 12 minutes. Yeah. You can be um, dead
1: I, for 12 minutes and come back? Know,
0: because he was lucky. There was a person where he, he passed out in a car park and um, there was someone there who knew CPR. So just compressed, doing compressions for six minutes until the ambulance got there and then they took over. And then it was another six minutes and then they got... Did he have like any brain damage or anything? Incredibly, like... I mean, he's in his 60s, so there's a little bit of dementia, but no more than what there would have been before the heart attack. Right. Yeah, so incredible. But That's it is that thing right? of like hearts in my family, because my mum's dad died of a heart attack at 39. So two, both sides of the family. All so right. I'm very much about you heart like health it. going, all right, yeah. no chippies for me. But yeah. This yeah, is happen, right.
1: So similar, and so I, I asked my doctor, she wanted to put me on some medication to lower ro- my triglycerides, and I said, is it possible to do this before? Because she said, once you go on the medication, you're on it forever. And like, i don't know, that yeah. just depressed me, that re- that reality. And I wasn't ready, and I said, what if I just sort of change my lifestyle through diet and exercise? And she said, well, you've got to be realistic. Are you actually going to do anything about it? And there's nothing like somebody I don't really know not believing in me to motivate me, yep. I was like, "I'm going to show you."
0: I and this actually, I in 2014 bought a gym membership, and some guy I worked with went, "What a waste of money! You'll never use that." And I'm like, "Fuck you! I'm going to use it so much," <laughs> and now it's a bit of a problem. Now I go more days than there are in a week. Um, but you at uh, the gym a lot, yeah.
1: What's your thing at the gym? I
0: like hit hit classes, so high intensity interval training, half hour, just get in there. But then I also pair that with doing some weight training as well. Otherwise, oh, that's good. Otherwise, my back. Is like to, like, just being a parent, bending down, picking stuff up all the time. Yeah. Being in your 40s, you just need to strengthen the muscles in And back. you need to
1: travel, you need to be able to, be, I'm like the donkey, you know, like when you travel, i got all the bags, yep. all the bags, I've got about yeah. to put the bags up in the top of the thing, yep. pull the bags out, get down, carry the pram down the subway, like I had all, like in my 30s when my kids were young, I did a lot of CrossFit and so I was like always getting the, you know, strength. Yep. I've talked to dads about anything. Like having some strength is so important because I think most of parenting is just throwing energy at shit every day. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. Yeah, bending down to see them. Like I always have this thing. I want to make sure when my kids are very little to bend down and speak to them eye to eye. Like I don't want to be like this kind of like almost like a a Peanuts cartoon where it's just yeah. legs and the, yeah anyway so I always try to make eye contact with them but yeah after a while you're like oh this is really hard on my back buddy like, yeah there's
1: a there's a good couple of months where they're learning to walk where you have to stoop and hold their hands yeah. and walk around in a bent over stoop position yeah. and it is a killer it is the worst I know you have to like tag it with your wife I don't know what single parents do maybe you need to like create some kind of harness or something where you're just lying down is the worst
0: uh, so growing up uh, did your family talk about health
1: yeah my um yeah my it was it was we my dad did all the cooking um he cooked pretty sort of um traditional sort of English food but we also ate a lot of vegetarian food yeah. so a lot of one pot wonders like casseroles going on um and dad was always... A big exerciser. So he's yeah. always had something going on, whether it was swimming in the pool. And I remember in year 11 and 12 when I was doing my VCE, I joined Dad in his swimming... What do you call them? I'm about to call him a swimming troop because I'm so theatrical. Yeah. In his troop, his swimming team, Group. squad. Yeah. squad yeah. yeah. And it was all that kind of like... um interval training like you know 50 meters on the on the minute and you know all that sort of stuff so um i got pretty fit doing that and that really got me through but in terms of what i do now like i've lost 17 kilos but that's mostly because i just changed my diet yeah and i'm trying to think about what so
0: what was the big thing that you had to cut out
1: well i stopped drinking booze which was partly because of fact that you know it's a lot of calories in booze but but also bit the knock-on effect of booze can lead you to you know eating yeah. badly and um so that was sort of about getting clarity but the rest of it is just like it's just you know lean protein and and then um and then salads and vegetables and stuff and then um, it's
0: annoying when the things they've been telling us for years work it's right. like oh that's right it actually does work like, yeah. it does
1: and then and then because I not drinking booze and eating healthily I just suddenly this, out of nowhere I've never had it before this sweet tooth arrived like, uh, yep. I'm really into the desserts and so I was like you know what I'm just gonna like with this new diet I'm gonna just eat desserts and see what happens and Thankfully, it hasn't had much of an effect. I'm like it's great. The biggest change I made was going from drinking a latte with one sugar to just having a long black. That was the that's the that's the biggest single change I've made in my adult life, I Sh- think.
0: I don't know if I know people who have sugar in their coffee anymore.
1: Really? Yeah,
0: that's. It. okay.
1: Full cream, full cream, full fat milk, yeah, one sugar. I think it's like fucking 350 calories in a yeah. in a latte. And now I just drink long blacks. And at first I was like, well, great. All the joy has gone out of coffee. And now I, I prefer it and I, it blows my mind. I'm like, you, we, you can always change. I hadn't changed much. And this is a big one.
0: When I first met my wife, uh, she, I, she doesn't drink coffee, but she's like, hey, maybe because I was drinking it with one sugar. She goes, maybe, do you need sugar? if you just don't have sugar like and so i tried it and then she was like do you need milk maybe just have it. and i'm like no i still need milk that's yeah. i'm still yeah yeah but anyway um so with uh your so health you've lost 17 kilos that's incredible yeah, okay uh mental health uh is there anything that are like red flags where you, something happens or you react a certain way you're like okay i need to get on top of this
1: um I mean, I go up and down like most people. My big one is always is is the the juggle between the creative space I need to write, yep, and all of my obligations as a father and as a husband and just as a person in the world. And you know, if I neglect, I, I've al- I've always been pretty conscientious about being um, involved as a dad. So, like, I squeeze riding into the gaps between that mostly um and then i can always take more time if i need to but having said that sometimes i'm just like i just would love a big you know i love a big stint to do some work without having to you know pick up kids or cook them dinner or yeah. you know drive them to gymnastics it's, it's very much a big thing so i find that can be really stressful um, so for right right now I've got a workshop of the second act of an Australian musical I'm writing for my old drama school um, and we just recently workshopped Act 1 and Act 2 we workshop starting on the 12th of February which is in a minute and I've like written
0: maybe half a song
1: yep. and I probably need 10 to 12 songs in the, all the script I'm writing the script as well So,
0: Do you work well with a deadline? Is that what you kind of need? I'm... I'm I think that's I need
1: one. Yeah, I need a deadline. I cannot work without a deadline. So, yes, the answer to that is yes, but then there's sometimes... uh, One thing is um, when you are looking at three months, but that three months goes over Christmas and New Year, that's always really tricky because there's a big block in there which is full of just family admin. Yeah. Um, And the other part of it is... um, I said yes to being in a production of Candide with Victorian State Opera in January, but that's because it was like a two-week process from go to woe with three three shows. And I'm like, that's fine. And then I was like, well, you need to turn up at day one of rehearsal not having the whole score and the whole script memorized. And I was like, <laughs> great. So that's yeah. just another floating set, source of panic that's there when I'm writing. That, so I'm there the writing. I'm like, thing, yeah. Yeah, so I'm trying to write a song, but I'm like, should, should I dip my head into this thing that I need to know? And then that's that in, inhibits it. So always trying to find the gap between having a, a good, appropriate deadline and some, a bit of stress in there to keep working, but not being too overloaded, I guess. And the big thing I have is that um, between, once I've done... Once i sort of take work and family off the table... I don't have any fucking hobbies. I don't have anything that I do. Don't,
0: don't, don't do you read?
1: Reading is, I've been forcing myself back into reading recently. Because yeah. I started a book club because it was just getting ridiculous. It was like, I'm not reading yep. for, for pleasure anymore. It's always just.
0: You're not a sport guy. Even though you wrote a Shane musical, you're not really a sport guy. I'm
1: not really a sport guy. I like surfing, but it's like. Yeah. Of course, that's a hobby that totally relies on driving two hours and risking the yeah, weather conditions.
0: You're off booze, so craft beer, getting into craft beer is not, not for you. No, I like mind.
1: cooking, but then so everything's like a, every side hustle has a has yeah. a purpose. So I'm like, Christmas come, what do you want for Christmas? I'm like, I want one of those KitchenAid stand mixers. Yeah. Right. Because I'm like, it's also like, just the, the you know the slave asking for fucking I, something to help them do their slave work better
0: i i i i got right back into basketball about 9 years ago
1: Oh, i've and been trying to get into basketball i don't know how
0: i i went back what got me into it going back to when i was a kid i loved basketball and so me too. all all these games are on youtube so i just went in to watch highlights and went oh this is cool and then it is one of those the NBA in particular is a very good sport to get into because there's so many games every day, but all the highlights go straight up. You don't have to watch all the games. You can just watch the highlights. Yeah. And then... and I. Probably watch hours of highlights. I kind of watch it like it's soap operas these days. It's like I like all the, the stuff around it, like all the, the trade talks, all this kind of stuff. More so than I mean, I still love the games, but yeah, but that's oh, you're into the
1: whole the whole industry, I, up I, now.
0: I just the fact that I know that like this 21 year old's on a 40 million three year contract, and it's like it might if he, it might get taken off him. It's it's oh, it's yeah, not, that's it, great. It's I, I a nice with, thing to like distract myself with.
1: It one of my early jobs was refereeing basketball. Yeah, I I really love basketball, but refereeing basketball actually turned me off it.
0: Yeah, everyone just yelling at you.
1: Yeah, yelling at me and just like angry, really, just angry yeah. men. Actually, it was yep. like the, it was almost like the older Eyes. and fatter and less important. The game was the more angry the individual.
0: Yes, I'm at that stage because yeah. I still play, and it's playing it's a whole b- against a whole against a bunch of people who their brain knows what they need to do, their body just can't get there, so they get frustrated. And then some poor seventeen year old kid who's refing a game makes one mistake, and they get blown up at by this guy. Yeah. Who's probably the manager at his law firm or whatever it is, and just is going crazy because he can't run as quick as he can, or he can't pass to where he's meant to pass. Yeah. To. All right. Uh, let's talk friends. Okay. That's health done. Okay. Friends. Uh, are you still friends with people from your youth? No.
1: No. No. I, yeah, no, I'm not friends with anyone from a oh, guy that I went to high school. I'm still saying I'm friends with. Them. I don't see that often, but um, I still you know like keep across yeah we actually when i was 15 we, we both went to St. beads when i was 15 i started singing in an archipelago choir that the city of melbourne um was running and there i met a whole bunch of people that were really good mates people including um alicia gardner who was in um who was in offspring we were in offspring together oh, great. she just she was just uh she played the uh, Kate Box's partner in Deadlock, oh, Alicia, Alicia yep. Gardner. She's yep. an amazing actress, beautiful singer. Yeah, uh, I met her when I was fifteen years old, and um, so I still am in contact with those people. And and Steve, who was my friend from high school, I still he he lives in Geelong, and he's a really interesting guy. Yeah, um, but no, I don't I don't keep up with my old high school. I didn't have a great time. At all. I didn't. I didn't feel like I found my people until I went to university yeah and even then I mean I think I'm I'm not great at I'm not great at keeping up with friendships I sort of have like a few friends that are one-on-one people that I like go for a walk with and yeah. you know that I really value those friendships but I do worry sometimes that it's, that it's so infrequent that you know that it, that it might end at any point
0: do you okay? So, what's the how do you make friends as an adult?
1: I don't know. Okay. Are you work, I, I guess, well, work working friends, with yeah. them,
0: working with them. Yeah. Um, do you have any friends that you've made as an adult that are outside of work? Um, because are they other dads at school? You've done the drop off, yeah. There's other, a, other moms yeah, that you like, yeah. I've hung yeah.
1: out with some dads and stuff, yeah. but um, uh, it's and that's fine um but yeah i do i do really I, I the friends that i'm adult friends that i'm with that are working in the same industry don't do the same things as i do yep. so i never feel a sense of competitiveness I, but i feel a sense of sort of um like um, simpatico like you know we both wrestling with performing arts issues whether yep. that's like um, whether someone's a conductor or someone's a director, or you know, like that kind of stuff, that way you can kind of get goss from different areas.
0: Do does your wife have friends that you've kind of now, now they're your friends?
1: Yeah, yeah. My wife has like, you know, like good friends. You know, yeah. like people that are really good people that um, have, have come into my life through her and are really special, amazing, amazing people. Yeah. Some mostly from the advertising world.
0: Do you ever call up a friend just for a chat? Oh yeah. You do? Okay.
1: Yeah. I'm I'm um I do a lot of dog dog walking, a lot yep. of walking and so that's when I call friends and parents and people like that while I'm wandering around. So and I and I don't uh, sometimes I schedule calls, sometimes I just try and catch people yep. by surprise.
0: Have you had a friend break up? As in it, you've either there's been an incident or just a slow ghosting.
1: Yeah, yeah, I've had a friend I've had a friendship break A friend that I was with that had a quite intense relationship with. Um yeah, that was a that's a complicated one because um I don't know, like I, I'm sure everyone has this experience where you sometimes look at your friends that you've been friends with for a really long time, and you're like, "Why the fuck are my friends with this person?" You know I what have, I
0: mean? I have a bit about it. I'm like, I have friends who I've known for 20 years. I'm like, if I met you today, fuck, I'd hate you. Like <laughs> it is that thing. and and vice versa. Like it would be that thing, but just because we went to the same university, where like we've got this thing that we and when you meet up with them, all we talk about is people we went to uni with. What are they doing? Oh, I don't know. Like yeah. And that's that's it. And you know, I'm not getting anything out of this friendship. They're not getting anything from it either. Like, yeah, compelled to have this friendship. I've I
1: I haven't been really keen to admit this to myself because my way of you know I've uh, having done a couple of things that really raised my profile, like being on the telly, for example. Yeah. Um. I think it. I feel like my way of dealing with it was just pretending that nothing had happened or changed. And so and to be honest, from where I am, I can I can kind of do that. I can walk through life and if somebody recognises me, it's not until they're like maybe, you know, ten feet past me that they'll react. And normally the person that sees that reaction are the other people around me, like my wife, my kids or whatever, they'll see people reacting to me, but I won't see it, so I can live in this bubble that you know, that I'm just a a normal person, which is very much what I feel like. But I, um, you know, I've had, I've had some experiences where I, I get the sense from a friend that, um, that, that my success is something that rubs them up the wrong way. Yeah. And it's never really spoken about, but it comes out in strange ways where they, where I get the feeling that, they're trying to just constantly take me down a peg. Like I like I'm in I've got an inflated sense of myself. And I don't to a fault, I don't talk about my self or my work with people. I have to work really hard to actually say, when someone says, How are you? And they actually give a shit about hearing the answer, to say, This is what's been going on in my life. My first thing is I like, I ask them questions, I get into their life and yep. then and then I just hope that maybe someone will go. But I, I have a lot of quite sort of self-interested, selfish friends who don't ask that stuff and I've learnt to deal with it. But at some point when somebody is like kind of undermining you and it's a really awful feeling of being white-anted, yep. uh, I I certainly have had the feeling of going, you know what, I'm just going to put this relationship over here and see what it's like yep. to not go back there. And then, and then you go, actually, you know what, I'm feeling good about not having to deal with that thing, you know?
0: Yeah, I find that having experienced that small bit of fame when I was hosting a TV show, a few of my friends did that thing where they were trying to, not put me down a bit, but almost like they're like, he's going to get a big head, so we're going to cut him down. I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm like feeling a bit lost here. I need friends to... Lift me up and support me. Yeah, and I had a few that were like, "Oh, you think you're too good for us?" And I'm like, "Not at all. I actually want this, and I want this friendship." And yeah, and yeah. i had a friend who didn't speak to me for two years because she thought I, I wouldn't want to speak to her anymore. Like, and it wasn't like she didn't speak to me in terms of like if she saw me, I'm gonna ignore you, but just never reached out. We were quite close, and she goes, oh no, nah, Josh is, I reckon he's got new friends now." And then I, I wrote this thing about how I was really struggling, and then she read it. Oh, I thought you were angry. I actually. Didn't think you'd need friends at this point. I thought you'd have heaps of friends, and so yeah, it's very hard.
1: Well, it's the thing is that you've is that you never stop. Yeah, everybody, no matter where they're at, especially if you're sort of working in a creative industry, even if you get a big step up, it's it's it comes with a huge challenges, associated challenges, and and you know you're not sure if you're right. You're not sure you can do it, and I and I if i sort of found myself around people that were like not supportive of it or just presume that you know we're not we're not going to talk about your life at all yeah. because it doesn't make me feel good about myself or i would find myself not ever discussing um things that were exciting or new or possibilities that i that made me really sad like if i couldn't ring up my friend and go I've got an opportunity to write this thing, and I'm so excited, and yeah. have them be excited for me. I, I, if I would go, oh, that's not going to go over very well, and then they're, they're, they're struggling a bit, so that's going to make them sad, or this, I'll be like, Fuck, that's such a bu- that's such a bummer.
0: Yeah, and look, I think it's it's I understand in this industry we're in, a lot of people are fighting and scrapping to get opportunities, and so sometimes it is very hard when you see your friends get these opportunities, and we all know it's like talent, like. Luck is a big thing, hard work, having a team behind it's like these things that, like, they all have to be kind of just happening at once for people to get these opportunities. Like, there's very few opportunities where people just kind of luck their way into it, or there's also opportunities where people are so fucking talented, work so hard, they just didn't get that one lucky break. Yeah, and it's not, uh, it's not saying that they're not as talented, they're just, there's so many people out there who, are like, just didn't get that thing that clicked for me. Like, I just either took a role that wasn't right for me but I just needed the work or I did it, whatever it is. But it's just it's so many people and like, it's really hard, especially in the creative industry to kind of when you know what you've dealt with and then someone gets just that break and go, I'm really happy for them but at the same time, oh, man, that would be nice. And yeah. it's hard as a friend to try and... Well,
1: I mean, you yeah. look at the way and just to pluck a name out of the air, like, you know, Benedict Cumberbatch, right? Amazing actor. And I would even go – be guilty of going, well, you know, you once you you become Benedict Cumberbatch, you know, nothing phases you anymore. You just go go do a Marvel movie. But, like, he's probably wearing Doctor Strange outfit, freaking the fuck out. Like, I don't think I can do this or I'm not – you know what I mean? Like, is this right or is this the right career choice? Like, everybody that is trying on new stuff and stepping up, even in ways that are way beyond anything you think you'll ever get your head around, are vulnerable. Fucking Thor is vulnerable. You know, like Chris Hensworth – and this is the thing I've learned because of the higher up you go and the more fancy the people, the more, you know, like um, kind of recognized and celebrated the people you are. I, I remember to, I've got the same agent as some of the best Broadway composer, lyricists around. And, you know they were. They are raking in. Some of them are raking in millions of dollars in royalties and have these shows that are selling out eight shows a week and completely success, like just unbelievably successful. But because they're not on the New York Times end of year yeah. list of ten most exciting composers to watch, they get that. That really upsets them. Why aren't I recognized as being like exciting or edgy? Because that everybody wants what they haven't got yeah. you know and it's really it's it's really tricky so I I always remember that when I'm you know even if I meet like really famous people I find there's always common ground to talk about work and if you go I saw you know if I met Jim Carrey you go uh, you go talk to me about this film that you made this film was fucking crazy how did you create the conditions on set that you could get away with doing that stuff do you how does that work? You know what I mean? They're, they're the things talking about the work and the things that interest people. I think people forget that you're always yeah. shitting yourself.
0: Well, it's, when I used to do radio on Triple R, and I'd have to interview musicians a lot. And I always, the thing I am always want to know is when you write a song that's a hit, do you know it's a hit straight away? And what do you do after that? Like, so, say so, so I'm interviewing, I don't know, fucking Chris Martin from Coldplay. Okay. You write yellow. Yeah. You've finished it off. Do you then go, Fuck, I've I've got this. This is this is a great song. What do you do? What's what's your day after that? Are you fucking nervous, going, Oh fuck, is this gonna be good? Or are you like on cloud nine? I'm fascinated with what people do after they've accomplished something. Well like. yeah,
1: it's also the thing if you write a song in your living room and you go, This is a this is a hit. There's still a million ways you can fuck that up. Do you know what I mean? You go into the studio and it doesn't work, or the producer wants to do something different, or because you're what they say is, you know, when you're inside the circle, you can't see the whole circle. Yeah. And there's so many different ways. Woody Allen, I know you're not supposed to mention. Woody Allen, which is fair enough, but he did say something really interesting about the process of making films where he says, you know, when I get an idea for a film and I sit down and I write the script in my head, it's perfect. And the process of making the film is just about making mistake after mistake after mistake until it ends up significantly less than the thing I had in my head and that great filmmakers minimise those mistakes.
0: I think filmmaking, out of all the artistic pursuits, filmmaking could be the hardest to nail because not only do you have to have... Great script, great casting, great cinematographer. Also, relying on weather is like fuck. Like we can, this yeah. can shut down, or we can't get these shots because it it rained all day. Whereas an art, like a painter, can go, well, the worst thing is like, I they don't have that color paint. Yeah, I'll fucking all right. I'll have to wait for it. Like it's yeah. F- filmmakers Oh my god Or they
1: go Oh we going to make The Revenant We're going to just go out in the snow And we're going to make You know what I mean Like it's yeah. extraordinary It's so extraordinary uh, And we just sit there Yeah We sit there and we like Ugh.
0: We watch it on our phones I It was alright Yeah it was fine I'm scrolling through Twitter at the same time Alright uh, okay uh, Family is our last one Okay so how many in your family um, Growing up
1: I have two sisters I'm the middle of two sisters oh,
0: I'm the middle as well
1: hey? Yes Um, yours, You got sisters or your brothers uh, I've got two brothers Ah uh, gotcha so, yeah, middle of two sisters, mum and dad, still together. Yep. Um, and so when I um, thought about having a family of my own, in my head it was always going to be three kids. Yeah. But then we had – I met my wife and she comes from a three-sibling family and she was like three kids. And then when we had Kitty, our first, she was like – um, it was, she was really fucking like, just – intensely in the world human being our daughter and required like <laughs> next level amount of she would just like she would just like run away yep she was, like, she she didn't like what was going on even at two she ran away when she was two and, and like <laughs> she ran all the way down to the Ligon Street shops in her nappy it was a beautiful summer's night a fan of just running up Lygon Street. Was
0: there a conversation between you and your partner about do we get a leash? Is that we got one of those backpack leash kids? I
1: used to look at the leashes and be like, I can I kind of.
0: Until I had kids, I used to judge parents who did it, and then I've got and we didn't have one, but I go, I understand it. I, I get, it. get it. Completely get it. I
1: mean, I might make it elastic. Yeah. <laughs> Not quite a hard jerk at the end of that line, but um, yeah, that she she was really difficult. Then we had um. We had baby number two, Charlotte, and um, you know she's fantastic, she's a totally different person, and less intense. Um, but you know, still, and then you know, go from one, going from one kid to two, yeah. is like going from you know, like boutique to you know chain store. You're really in the family then. It's yeah. great. You've got like more. You got as many kids. You got. You can't hold a coffee anymore. Yeah, it's like right. I'm dad, and I love that. And and then, you know, Lucy and I never really stopped working during all of that. We just we were just hectic and running around. We were so busy in our 30s and, you know, she, she was working, running, um, you know, running the um, strategic departments of advertising agencies and very much in demand. And I was doing a lot of sort of TV stuff and a lot of live um, comedy. Um, and then we were, and we were like, do we really want to go back for a – a third, so we so we yeah. didn't. We stayed with two.
0: And you moved overseas with your family? Yeah, how we is, moved to New how, York. How, how old were your kids when you moved?
1: They were eight and ten.
0: So, changing schools, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. How was that when you are going over to, you know, new city, working, and then all the logistics of finding a house, finding a school, all that kind of yeah, shit? Yeah,
1: it's crazy. Yeah.
0: It's exciting. I think, you
1: know, the, the, the universe gives you, I reckon two to four weeks of this different kind of energy when you move to a new place yeah. that allows you to get through all the admin. It allows you to, you know, like give a shit about going to parties and meeting people and cultivating friends and trying all the local cafes and all the local restaurants yeah. and doing all the admin shit you need to do. In America, there's a lot of weird admin. And then that energy goes away. So if you don't use it when you first got it, you lo- you lose it. Yeah. Um, and New York was really... Excite- finding an apartment was insane, like insane. Getting healthcare was just made. I still don't understand yeah. how we managed. We ended up going to some weird little. It was like a it was like a bunker, like somebody's like it was somebody's house, and they were lived in a basement, and that was a woman behind a desk, and we went and saw her, and she hooked us up with Obamacare. <laughs> we're like Jesus, kids. Kids would be like hanging upside down from the the monkey yeah. bars, and would be like. Please don't fall off. If you break your arm, we can't afford We're just going to have to...
0: Did the kids love it? Was it...
1: They loved... They hated it at first. Yeah. They found it really hard at first. And then they got into it. Yeah. And then by the end of it, they were quite keen to come back All to right. Australia. I mean, we lived in on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. It was an amazing experience, but it was also
0: just very intense. Yeah. So, as a parent, what did you realise about your own parents, ha- having been a parent?
1: Um... Well I think that I think the most important thing you learn when you have kids of your own is that it's really hard and you're destined to make a huge amount of mistakes no matter what you do. Yeah. But that you get a very strong sense that you were loved. Yeah. And that, that that there was a whole lot of stuff going into the loving and the and the protecting and the raising of you that you never knew about because you are just completely selfish and self-centered. And so it gives you a great profound sense. I, at least for me of my parents did their best. Yep. Um, and even when they didn't do their best, even when the wheels fell off and they didn't, you know, they, they couldn't or wouldn't do or whatever. I, I, I have a huge amount of, um, empathy and sympathy for that as well. I think that's totally natural and normal and, um, you know, I had moments where like, uh, yeah, you know, I'd lose my temper and I would go, oh, that reminds me of when my dad lost my temper at me. And then I'm like, do I want to be like that? And yeah. then I would had moments where I was like, oh, I don't want to be that guy. And then I was like, you're oh, just a shit. I don't, you know what I mean? I, it's like, sometimes you just get angry.
0: When you lose your temper at your kids, do you apologize for it? Um...
1: Yeah, sometimes, did yeah. Did your
0: parents ever apologise to you for losing the temper at you? I don't think so. No, it's... It, I'm the no. same. I, no. I don't remember my parents ever... Oh, my dad My dad apologised once, but he went... I won't say what, but he went too far. We understood. We moved on, but it was that one time, and he came in and apologised, but it was also an apology, apology in terms of like, well, you know what you did, though. Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm sorry I did this, but you know what you did. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: I mean, I often... You go, okay, yeah, I kind of crossed the line or whatever. But um, we've got a very loud house. So it's, it's kind of governed by nobody kind of keeps things to themselves. It's like it's a, it's a get-it-out house. And one of the negatives of that is I feel like it's the squeakiest wheel that gets the attention. So if you want to get some attention, if you're struggling, you kind of need to l- lose it Yep. Um, or do something kind of really dramatic yeah. Like just leave the house and go, you can bloody, <laughs> you can eat your
0: eat your feet, you right. know, and just walk out the was door. Was your house like that growing up? No, my parents
1: didn't argue in front of us. Okay. So a couple of times I remember then had, it was obvious they'd had a big fight because they weren't really talking to each other and it was frosty, but yeah. it, it would happen behind closed doors. And I, um, that's the way they chose to do it. But I don't, we don't do that. We have fights. We just have it all out.
0: Yeah. And Lucy's parents, are they... They argue or?
1: Well, Lucy. Um, Lucy's com- parental situation is really complex. She she lost her mother in a car accident when she was eight years old. The oh. family were on a family holiday and all, all family members in the car, her and her two brothers and her mum and her dad. And her mum was driving and um, the car span off the road and hit a tree and her mum died and the rest of them were very badly injured as well. Yeah. And so um, it was Lucy and her her father who is a now retired um, kidney specialist so very high up in South Australia in the in the hospital and um, was very busy so her yeah her her family dynamic is really unusual yeah. in that but um, she's now a provisional psychologist doing her placements yeah. and um, that's really useful but not as useful as you'd think in being a mum like you know you try explaining to a 14 year old girl like you know what is going on with her brain neuro- neurologically yeah. she doesn't give a shit you know she's like don't do your psychology thing on me mum yeah you know all that kind of shit so um yeah we we're big and loud and yeah. open and that seems to kind of work and if it, somebody is really struggling and they really crack it then we go okay we've got to we got to be nice to that person
0: Cause i only ask cuz it's funny when you marry into a family and then you see how other families are compared to your family and you know because i just thought that arguing was what couples did and then i met my wife and her family and they don't do arguments in front of anyone if they do have a disagreement they go off Uh and they do it very and then my parents are divorced now but they weren't when me and beck first met and i remember one night beck was like at our house in Tasmania, she goes, do you reckon your parents love each other? I'm like, yeah, that's just how they are. And then that night at dinner, mum was like, I've thought about it, kids. I don't want to be buried next to your father. I, I've slept next to him for 35 years. I, I'm done Bury me on the other side if if I go first. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> all right, I reckon there might be a problem here.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, oh, I'll be dead and it's still... Yeah, I don't I still don't want, want, want to be next. next to him. Yeah, that's but not yeah. a great sign.
0: They, they, they separated not long after that. Yeah, it was...
1: Do you think that was that was it? That was the, thing, the no, straw. No,
0: you... I'll tell you what. What was it afterwards? It, it's big. It was <laughs> oh big. God. Anyway, um, cool. I think that's that's all we need to talk about. Pa- uh, family. Okay. Great. All right. Now that's now we have the part of the show where we, we go through your burners. You tell me which ones you're keeping on. Yeah. And which ones you're turning off. All right. So we started with career. Uh, yes. So, well, that's that's on. I've got three of the, three career
1: burners going at yeah. once, and it's, it's terrifying. But yes.
0: All right. Careers on, okay. So then we went uh friends. No, we went health. Health on off. off.
1: Yeah, health is a little one.
0: Yep, friends.
1: I'd I'd say it's a small one too. Yeah, and family. I think family, family, and career are like the the main ones. Yes.
0: Well, the theory is if you turn one off, the other three can work very well. If you turn two off, the other two work exceptionally well. So right. Like so it sounds like you've got two very dim and two going extremely well. Yeah. That's good though.
1: Yeah, that's good. I mean, I've got a little bit of stock on the friendship pot. Just yep. sort of bubbling away. Doesn't need too much attention. And that's good. Yeah. well, it's, it's really just like work. I've made dog walking part of my writing process. So I'm kind of like combining things. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the efficiency that I've got going on. Great.
0: Hey, thanks for doing this, Eddie. Pleasure. Thank Where, you. Uh, can people find you? You've got shows coming up? Nah. You've got three, nothing. three, three musicals too so <laughs> Three shows. Uh,
1: Beetlejuice in 2025, I think. Oh, great. Or uh, people can come and see Candide if they're into Leonard Bernstein. I know, he's, you know the, the movie's coming out in a minute, yeah. Maestro. Leonard Bernstein, one of um, America's most important conductors and composers, and he wrote a piece called – he wrote a few musicals, and this one's sort of a hybrid between classical music and – um, and musical theatre, it's called Candide, and it's on at the Palais Theatre, Victorian Opera. Nice. it um, be me, Maria Mercedes, Lyndon Watts, who just played Burr in Hamilton, is amazing, so it'd be good.
0: Leonard Bernstein, every time I hear his name, though, I just think of Michael Stipe singing it in End of the World as we know it. He mentions Leonard Bernstein? He, he Apparently it's from a dream he had where everyone had the initials LB, and Leonard Bernstein was one of them. Wow. So that became a, a lyric for R.E.M., The things that are in here that shouldn't be in here. I wish I had more interesting stuff. Hey, thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks, everyone, for downloading these episodes. If you'd like to see uh, me do live uh, comedy, go to joshale.com.au. Tickets are on sale for next year's festival shows uh, right now, so make sure you go get them. Thanks, Eddie. That's very organised. Well done. Oh, it's not me. It's the festival. They do it all. (laughs) All right, cheers. Thanks. (laughs)